and how much freedom do we have? Because freedom isn't just the ability to go out and buy chocolate at midnight. Yeah. Or to go here and there as you wish. If we look, is our mind free? And can we control things? We look closely, you see that our mind is under the control of afflictions and karma. We're not free of those. And especially the conception of I, this grasping at a truly existent I, that feels so natural, so automatic. And yet when we look closely, that grasping totally uh, limits our freedom completely uh, traps us and limits us. But we don't notice that. We think that grasping to the eye and that eye is wonderful. That's who we are. Yippee. But it's actually quite the reverse. So due to that grasping... Then we have to keep this I happy, prevent it from having anything it doesn't like. So we spend a lot of energy trying to accomplish that by rearranging everything in the world. But everything in the world resists our ability to control it. And so at the time of death, all the things that we were trying to control so that we can have what we like and not be around what we don't like, all those objects stay here when we die. But the karma we create continues on with the mind stream. And together with the afflictions, the afflictions and karma in c- control so much of what our experience is. So this isn't just the situation for ourselves. We aren't the only one that faces this dilemma. And there's nobody or nothing we can complain to because we don't like this situation or we think it's unfair. So our best chance is to study what samsara is, study how our own mind for focus, how our own mind functions, and then learn the Buddha's tools for how to transform the mind. 
and apply them. So we're doing this not simply for our own well-being, but in order to completely purify our mind and develop our good qualities so we can be of the utmost service to other living beings. And sharing the teachings tonight is one step in that direction. So we've been talking about karma, which means action, volitional action of body, speech, and mind. And uh, we've talked about the general qualities of karma, the specific kinds of karma and their specific qualities. And then last time we were talking about uh, what makes actions heavy, yeah? So uh, the things that make a, makes karma heavy, it functions both in terms of a non-virtuous karma and a virtuous karma. So if we're aware of this, then we can try and make our non-virtue lighter and try and make our virtue heavier, Okay, so that's why this topic is actually quite helpful. So, um, you know, listen to it, but then go back and reflect and look at your own actions and analyze them according to the different uh, characteristics that make something heavy. And you'll get a, a, a sense then of about you know, your actions and the kinds of imprints, heavy or light, that they leave on your mind stream. And that's quite, a, you know, uh, good, because when we leave heavy, virtuous ones, we can rejoice. When we leave heavy, non-virtuous, <laughs> you know, the, the imprints of non-virtuous karma, then we need to do more purification. Mm-hmm. So last time we talked about uh, five criteria that Tsongkhapa cited about that. Okay, so the strength of our attitude, the method of doing the action, the lack of an antidote, holding wrong views, uh, and the object of the action. And then there's other factors Two, that that may make both constructive and destructive actions more powerful. Okay? So those five aren't the only ones. Here's a whole bunch more. So the frequency. Okay? So if we lose our temper, such as losing our temper often, creates heavy destructive karma. By repeatedly being patient with others, creates strong uh, virtuous karma. 
Okay, so the repetition. Um, so there's things we do every day, you know. We get up in the morning and we prostrate, set, set uh, our motivation, make offerings. So, you know, just by the force of doing these things every day and dedicating in the evening, then it makes those actions uh, much stronger. Another one is regretting harmful actions. So that leads us to do purification, which lessens the power of those karmic seeds. However, regretting constructive actions decreases the power of the seeds of those actions. Okay, so whether we regret something can make it stronger or it can make it weaker or, or stronger. Yeah. So we want to regret uh, when it comes to non-virtuous actions and uh, not regret when it comes to constructive actions. Sometimes we may, uh, you know, create a whole lot of virtuous karma, and then afterwards we feel so tired, and we go, oh, I wish I hadn't done all of that. I'm so exhausted. And what we do when we think like that is we weaken the power of all that virtuous karma we just created. Yeah? So when you create virtue, make sure you rejoice afterwards. Don't regret that. You know, and when you're generous, make sure you rejoice. Don't go, oh, dear, I meant to write $10, a $10 check to that charity, and I put an extra zero on, and I gave them $100, and now, you know, I was going to go out to dinner with some friends, and I won't have the money to do that anymore. Boy, I blew it. So don't think like that. Okay, because that just destroys the power of the, the merit. Okay, then rejoicing. Some, it's similar to regretting in that uh, rejoicing at both our harmful and helpful actions makes them more powerful. So we, we rejoice. You know, somebody came and they bossed me around and they told me to do that. And I looked at them and I said, Get out of here. I'm so glad I did that. I stood up for myself, and they ran like a dog with a tail behind between their legs. Oh, I did well. Okay, so that's going to make the action pretty intense, the karma pretty weighty. Okay, rejoicing at our virtuous actions. Yeah, We usually have much more enthusiasm, rejoicing for the non-virtue than the virtue. The virtue is like, oh, I made offerings this morning on the altar. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, but non-virtue, oh, I told somebody off and put them in their place. <laughs> I'm so pleased with myself. Okay. <laughs> So, something to think about. Then, the strength of our motivation. So, it increases the strength of our actions as well. So, for this reason, acting when our mind is overwhelmed by jealousy, anger, resentment is not wise. Of course, when our mind is overwhelmed by jealousy, anger, resentment, 
We have so much energy to respond, and we want to do something. We're on fire, and it feels like I've got to do something right now to correct the situation. Otherwise, the universe is going to collapse. Okay? So, you know, with our negative motivations, boy, you know, we really pump them up, don't we? We're not kind of lazy about that, like, oh, gee, I really got to tell somebody off today. You know, nothing like that. We are enthusiastic. Yeah. Somebody criticized me yesterday. I know how I'm going to get them today. And we really pump up that motivation. So it's not wise to do that, you know, to act when our mind is under this way of afflictions. But it's very hard, isn't it, to stop? Yes or no? Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Because the adrenaline is going, and also because our mind exaggerates the necessity of doing that action. It really feels like, you know, somebody said something at a meeting, and if we don't correct it right now, everybody's going to go, everything's going to go down the tubes. So I've got to go in there and make a big deal and make sure people never think that ever, ever, ever again. However, cultivating a strong motivation with compassion and bodhicitta each morning will positively affect all the virtuous actions we do that day. Okay? So, again and again, generating bodhicitta strengthens that motivation. And and really, uh, you know, well, this is where I think the whole thing of rejoicing and regretting can influence this factor of the strength of our motivation. Because if we rejoice at a certain action a lot, you know, then that not only strengthens the karma, but the next time we do it, we have a stronger motivation because we've been reflecting on that motivation. So that would be for both the virtuous and non-virtuous actions. Okay, so constructive actions done by those holding precepts are more powerful than those done by people without the precepts. The more precepts we hold, the stronger the result of our virtuous actions. A fully ordained monastic's generosity creates more powerful constructive karma than that of someone without precepts. The constructive actions of those holding the bodhisattva precepts are stronger, while virtuous actions done by those with all three ethical codes, pratimoksha, bodhisattva, and tantra, are even greater. Now, what's interesting here, when they say the more precepts you you have, then the stronger your virtue is when you uh, create virtue. So I remember one time, uh, I can't remember which lama it was, but somebody raised their hand and said, 
well, bhikshunis have much, many more precepts than bhikshus do. So do the bhikshunis create more virtue? Yeah? Is their karma heavier than the bhikshus? Yeah, he didn't like that question. <laughs> okay. Then acting out of ignorance is lighter than doing the action with awareness of the karmic consequences of our actions. So young children swatting insects without understanding that killing is harmful is not as heavy as the same action done by someone who knows that killing is non-virtuous and either doesn't care or is overwhelmed by mental afflictions. Okay? So if we know something is non-virtuous, yeah, then it's stronger negativity if we do it than if we're just unaware of anything like that. Okay. So I guess the kiddies, they create some non-virtue, but not as much as human beings do when they kill insects. Okay. Then mental illness. That's another factor. So mental illness that obscures the mind lessens the strength of destructive actions. So, uh, you know, somebody is mentally ill, they can't think straight, yeah, they can't think clearly, they're quite confused, they're hallucinating, then the karma they create is not as strong as somebody who understands clearly what they're doing and can, you know, think clearly about the situation. So the Vinaya takes uh, this factor of mental illness into consideration when determining whether someone commits a full transgression of a root downfall, such as killing a human being. A monastic who intentionally engages in and completes a root downfall is no longer a monastic and is expelled from the Sangha. However, if a monastic suffering from severe mental illness does such an action, it is not considered a full transgression because they weren't in their right mind. Okay, then the next factor that can make a karma an action heavy or light, uh, or heavy it usually is, is the general mental constitution of a person. Okay, so this influences the weight of an action as well as its result. If we put, so here's an example to explain what what it means, okay? If we put a lump of salt in a small cup of water, the water will be very salty and undrinkable. Whereas if we put it in the river Ganges, it won't influence the water very much. Similarly, When a person who is undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom, okay, creates a trifling bad karma, it leads him to hell. Whereas a person who is developed in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom, creates exactly the same trifling bad karma. It is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less an abundant residue. 
Okay, so the last part is from the Pali Canon. So what this means is if a person... Well, let me finish reading the, the whole paragraph. That might clear it up. Because of the great virtue in the latter person's mind stream, the destructive action does not grossly affect his character. He will experience an unpleasant result of the action in this life, and there will be no further suffering residue to be experienced in future lives. The opposite occurs with a person of little virtue. Okay, so the general mental constitution means, you know, is it the kind of person who tends to be honest and ethical, or is it a person who tends to do shortcuts and not be so ethical and get away with whatever they can get away with? Okay, so just kind of the, the basic character at that time. It's not something permanent in the person. It can be changed. But if a person, you know, usually misbehaves and they're flippant and they don't care about this kind of stuff, then if they do even a small bad action, because there's so much negativity in their mind, then the result of that small bad action becomes much stronger. Whereas if there's somebody who generally has a virtuous state of mind, or at least not a really vile state of mind, if they do the same small negative action, you know, it will, they'll experience in this life, the result in this life, and then the, it'll, the karma will be done, finished. They won't have any kind of rebirth or any kind of other uh, harm come to them. Okay? So when we have small, you know, things that are painful uh, during the day, yeah, it, can, it could be the result of some small karma, you know, because our mind is basically virtuous. Or it could be even, if we're actively purifying, the result of some kind of heavy karma from a previous life that is now resulting in whatever experience we have now. And so it's finishing. Yeah. So when you know when we're unha- we're unhappy, when we're in a bad mood, when we don't feel well, okay, then it's good to think, oh, now my karma is ripening and it's finishing. Yeah. And then by thinking like that, we make it into purification. Whereas if we don't think like that, then it's just karma ripening. But it doesn't become a, a, a purification practice that's actually, uh, you know, cleansing the karma pretty well. The question of the weight of naturally negative actions, so those are actions that no matter who does them, whether they're a person who has precepts or not, they, it's, uh, it's negative, okay? Such as killing and stealing, uh, so the weight of those kind of actions created by those with precepts can be looked at from different perspectives. Okay, So here Tsongkhapa says, Therefore the Buddha said that non-virtues are light for the knowledgeable who regret their formal, former non-virtuous actions, restrain themselves from future non-virtuous actions, 
do not conceal their negativities, and do virtuous actions as remedies for those non-virtuous actions. Okay, so by applying the four opponent powers, then those non-virtues that we did before become much lighter. Yeah, because we're knowledgeable about how to purify and we do the purification. However, non-virtues are weighty for those who make a pretense of being knowledgeable and do not do those actions but belittle them and engage consciously in non-virtuous actions. Okay? So, again, it's, it's here the, the criteria is the person who does the action, okay? So somebody who's knowledgeable about the Dharma, who knows about karma, who, you know, understands something is negative and will purify, that negativity becomes later, lighter, whereas uh, the same negativity done by somebody who isn't knowledgeable about karma and doesn't engage in purification, then that same action becomes heavier. Those living in precepts of any kind are continually creating constructive karma as long as they are not transgressing a precept. Two people may be sitting in a room talking, one holding the precept to abandon killing, the other not. Neither of them is killing. The person with the precept is continuously creating the constructive karma of not killing because she is acting in accord with her virtuous intention to abandon killing, while the other person is not creating such karma. Okay, so this is the force of making a, um, a strong intention and generating a precept body, okay? is that there's a constant accumulation of merit. However, if a person with precepts consciously engages in non-virtuous actions and does not purify or have regret, the karma is heavier. Okay, so this question comes a lot. You know, if a monk or a nun does an action, is non-virtuous action, is it heavier because they have to overcome the power of their precept mentally so their intention is stronger and so the karma is heavier? Or is their karma lighter because uh, they know, they understand about karma and they do purification practice every day? Okay, so you see it, it's both. It's not either or both of those factors play a role. Okay, so understanding the factors that make an action more potent enables us to maximize the power of our virtue and inhibit the strength of our non-virtue. Mindfulness of these factors induces deeper introspective awareness that monitors our thoughts, words, and deeds because we want to make our virtue as strong as we can and our non-virtue as weak as possible. Together, this mindfulness and introspective awareness makes our lives more vibrant and meaningful. Without confidence in the law of karmic causality, it is extremely difficult to gain higher realizations on the path. 
That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Yeah, because how many people think, you know, I'm practicing the Dharma and I'm going to get realizations this life, but they don't really have strong confidence in karma. Yeah. So Nagarjuna tells us in, in um, Ratnavali and Precious Garland, due to having faith in karma and its effects, one relies on the precepts. Due to having wisdom, one truly understands. Of those two, wisdom is foremost, but faith in karma and its effects must come first. Okay, do you remember that verse? Yeah, we went through it. While the wisdom realized... Okay, let me explain that. Because it looks like we're changing topics in the next verse. So what it's saying is there's working for happiness in samsara and working for, uh, you know, that that's called... How did we translate it? Higher... Um, Huh? Yeah, upper, higher rebirth and highest good. We tried to make it, I think, both with higher in it. Yeah. So maybe we put upper. Maybe we said higher. Anyway, so there's there's two things we you know two aims. One is the higher rebirth, and then one is the highest good. Highest good refers to liberation and awakening. Higher rebirth means having a rebirth whereby we can continue to practice the Dharma in in that lifetime. Okay, so um, having faith in karma and its effects is what, if we practice that, that will lead us to have the higher rebirth. Okay, If we generate the wisdom that understands emptiness, that will lead us to... Uh, to the highest good, the liberation and full awakening. Okay? So due to wisdom, one truly understands the nature of reality. Okay? And of those two, wisdom is foremost, because wisdom is what will get us out of samsara altogether. But faith in karma and its effects must come first, because Without changing our behavior, there's no chance of having a good rebirth, and then we won't be able to create all the other causes that will lead to the highest good. Okay, that clear? While the wisdom realizing emptiness is foremost in that it overcomes the ignorance that is the root of samsara, we need to create the cause for a series of fortunate rebirths in samsara during which we can practice the path. Without belief in karma and its effects, we do not evaluate our actions and motivations and carelessly engage in many destructive actions that lead to unfortunate rebirths. In such births, we will be unable to meet the dharma let alone cultivate liberating wisdom. It will also be difficult to create virtue that will bring fortunate rebirths in the future. However, 
having even a general understanding and confidence in the functioning of karma and its effects gives us the ability to control our future by practicing virtue and abandoning non-virtue. So if we want to have control in our lives, the time is the time when we're creating the causes. That's when we can really influence what causes do we create. Are they virtue? Are they non-virtue? Are they heavy karma? Are they light karma? Okay. Now the next sex section is discerning virtuous from non-virtuous actions. So that seems like it should be easy to do. We only create virtue, don't we? Yeah. I mean, even when we scream at somebody, it's virtuous because they need to learn to, you know, behave better. So we're doing it for their own benefit, right? Right? Okay, discerning virtue from non-virtue can initially be difficult. Applying the above four criteria of the ten paths of non-virtue to the ten paths of virtue is very helpful. So the four criteria being the object, the attitude, the action, and the conclusion of the action. Okay, because if all of those are complete, the action is complete and will bring a rebirth. If not all of them are complete, it's not definite to bring a rebirth. Um, Attachment, animosity, confusion, and the karma that arises from them are non-virtuous. Non-attachment, non-anger, non-confusion, and the karmas that arise from them are virtuous. Okay. Now, I remember looking at this before, and I remember we discussed this many, many years ago, um, because we had a translation that said attachment, anger, and ignorance, and we thought the ignorance there was the ignorance grasping at true existence, because we were so confused. We were always grasping at inherent existence. So that means, you know, even when we do virtuous actions, it's non-virtuous because there's grasping inherent existence. That's not what confusion means here. Here, confusion means it's it's the ignorance or the confusion um, about uh, about karma. What is virtue? What is non-virtue? Yeah, that's what the the ignorance or the confusion is about. It's not the grasping at inherent existence but it'll come here. So attachment, animosity, confusion, and the karma that arises from them are non-virtuous. Non-attachment, non-anger, non-confusion, and the karmas that arise from them are virtuous. So attachment has a specific meaning in Buddhist texts where it is defined as a mental factor that when referring to a polluted object exaggerates its attractiveness, and then wishes for and clings to it. So polluted means associated with ignorance and associated with cyclic existence. So polluted objects include our five psychophysical aggregates, 
and the large majority of things in the, in the world around us. So attachment is afflictive, biased, and unrealistic. And actions done under the influence of sensual attachment are destructive. They lead to unhappiness in future lives and prevent our gaining spiritual realizations. And even in this life, when the things were when we're separated from the things we're attached to, or they betray us, or they break, or we can't get them, then again we're very miserable. Okay. Sometimes it is difficult for us to distinguish attachment from genuine love and appreciation. One clue that attachment is present is when we initially think something is very wonderful and later find it boring or even disgusting. Okay? So when we initially think something is just like fantastic and then later it's like, ah, that meant that our initial way of... uh, Apprehending the object was distorted. So this indicates that initially we were exaggerating the attractiveness of the person, object, place, idea, and so forth. For example, when we see a new car in the showroom, it appears wonderful and we proudly show it off to our friends after we buy it. But after some time, the car becomes uninteresting and we seek something new and exciting. Yeah? Okay. This indicates we had an unrealistic view of the car and had exaggerated its ability to provide us continuous pleasure. If we look around... Most of the things that we grasp onto and want, yeah, later on we see they just aren't the same. So, yeah, attachment was present. Anger is easier to recognize when it surges in our mind, but sometimes we are resistant to seeing that it is afflictive and motivates destructive karma. Instead, we justify our anger as necessary to protect our own interests. So other people's anger is always negative, and it's especially negative when it's directed towards me. Okay, but my anger is important because if I don't take care of myself, who will take care of me? So I need to take care of myself and defend my interests. And besides, if I don't, everybody will think I'm a wimp. They'll think I'm a doormat. They'll take advantage of me. Yeah, they'll beat me up. So I've got to put on my most powerful face. (laughs) Oh... Yeah, and make my case. (laughs) Okay, confusion. And here, 
is the definition of it here. Ignorance about what is virtuous and what is not is also difficult to recognize. We easily believe our own or others' incorrect ideas about what to practice and what to abandon, and in the process engage in many damaging actions, thinking that they are virtuous. Only later do we see our lack of clarity involving ethical conduct. So that's what confusion means here. Okay, so yeah, we can have a lot of that confusion and, uh, you know, not, I mean, I get so many emails from people and it, it comes up also as a question in teachings a lot. People will say, I can't tell the difference between being, doing something virtuous and being selfish, Okay, uh, somebody wrote just recently and, you know, and said, I have the things that I'm interested in that I want to do and develop, but my family wants me to work at, at the family business. Yeah, uh, am, am I being selfish by not doing that? Okay, or the usual one is I want to go on retreat, but my family wants to go on vacation. Am I being selfish by going on retreat and not going on a vacation? Or even not something as like, like that. Uh, you know, uh, my family wants to go out to a seafood uh, restaurant and, and have live seafood, and I'm a vegetarian. Am I being selfish by kind of backing, you know, saying, I'm sorry, I won't go, or something like that, because that's all they serve at a seafood restaurant. You know, so people have so so much, when they hear the Dharma and they hear attachment creates negativity, they, they have a hard time understanding, you know, what is a, uh, a clear desire that is backed by reason and common sense and what is attachment that is selfish that's just, I want this and I don't care about anybody else. And people start to think, anytime you do something you like, you're doing it out of attachment. And then they say, can you be attached to the Dharma? You know, I'm so attached to the Dharma. I want to go to the center every week. But my family wants me to stay home. Am I being selfish? Is this attachment? You know, maybe I should sacrifice uh, what I want you know, because desire is bad and, you know, stay home and, uh, uh, you know, be at home. And I have one friend, and I lived in Singapore. She had th three kids, a couple of, two of them were teenagers, one was younger. They didn't like her going to the Dharma Center so much, but they wanted her to stay home. But when she stayed home, they went out. So... After a few times of this, she said, look, kids, I'm going to the Dharma Center, you know? Because um, she was going, to, of course, to the center with a good motivation. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so much has to, we have to look at our own motivation. And, you know, having a preference, having a want, these are not necessarily all selfish. They don't all fall, fall 
under the heading of attachment, because not all of them involve, uh, you know, exaggerating something. And if we look at our teachers, they are very decisive about what they prefer. Yeah, there's no wiggle room in there. It's like, no, we're not going to do this, and we are going to do that. Yeah, and and we're standing there going, but, 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 <laughs> you know? Uh, but it's very clear. But you can see that they're thinking clearly, and so you make a decision. And making a decision, yeah, to do something that you consider virtuous is not selfish. Yeah. It's really kind of sad when people get very confused about that and, and then say, you know, oh, I've got to give up the Dharma to preserve my relationships and everything. Okay. Non-attachment, non-anger, and non-confusion are not the lack of the three poisons, but mental factors that are their opposites. So non-attachment is a balanced, open attitude. Remember, it's a, we talked about this last week, was it? That it's a, a mind state that, you know, doesn't want to accumulate more and better. Okay? So it's, it's yeah, it, it has balance, it has satisfaction, it's not grasping. So it's just not like, you know, well, I'm sleeping, so there's no attachment in my mind. That's not what non-attachment is. It's a definite virtuous mental factor. Okay. Uh, Non-anger is love. So it's not just the absence of anger. It's actually the opposite of anger, just as non-attachment is the opposite of attachment. And non-confusion is wisdom. So again, not just the lack of confusion. It's the opposite. The three non's are virtuous mental factors, and the actions motivated by them are also virtuous. So when we study Lohrig, the 11 virtuous mental factors, these three are three of them. Okay. Observing our mind closely with mindfulness and introspective awareness, both in meditation and in daily life, helps us to recognize these mental states in our own experience. This takes time, but it is very worthwhile because discerning virtue from non-virtue in our own mind is essential to abandoning destructive karmas and creating constructive karma. Um, In the section about factors that increase the weight of our karma, Mm -hmm. one is acting out of ignorance. Um, And supposedly this is lighter than doing the action with awareness of the consequences. So does this exclude wrong views because this is this exclude. exclude wrong views because in the previous section uh Sankapa said that if someone holds wrong views that makes the karmic weight heavier of a negative action. So here it's saying ignorance acting out of ignorance makes it lighter. Oh, I see. I see. Wrong wrong views this is just ignorance where you don't know. Wrong views is you have, it's not just not knowing. It's actively holding something that is incorrect. 
So it's not just the same as ignorance. Verse from uh, Nagarjuna. Mm -hmm. Another problem with it is with with regard to attachment, um, because not all attachment is non-virtuous. For example, there's attachment in the upper realms, the form and formless realms. So that's why it's specifically attachment to. I mean, actually. It talks about this in volume three when mm-hmm. it goes, you probably remember, goes yeah. into great detail with attachment and His Holiness says it's actually attachment to sensual pleasure, sensual right. desire. So that's in that paragraph. If well, you, it not, says attachment is afflictive, bias, and unrealistic and actions done under the influence of sensual attachment are destructive. Mm-hmm. So that's limiting it to the desire realm, not the upper realms. Yeah. But also his holiness. Well, I guess here he uses the term aspiration. He said, um, attachment here in this verse refers to selfish desire for material possessions, praise, good reputation, and pleasant sensory experiences. And this can lead to non virtuous actions, while aspiration for the happiness of future lives can lead to virtuous actions. Yeah. So, I mean, you could call that attachment. I want to be born mm-hmm. no, in aspiration a good rebirth. is a different mental factor. Yeah, but yeah. it's similar. Similar it, to... It, it can be similar, but it's a totally different one because attachment is one of the root, um, root afflictions and aspiration is one of the object-discerning mental factors. But in that section, he also talks about how the term attachment and also sometimes craving is found in the texts. Right. And, and you have used to understand. In a positive connotation. Yeah. But, but that's the thing. If it's. Ah, desire, yeah, these terms. Huh? Yeah, desire. And he explains yeah. that. So that's the thing that you have to learn, you know, what the meaning of the word is in a specific context. So this is what we talk about with Jeffrey all the, uh, in Jeffrey's class all the time, is we want one word to have one meaning in all circumstances, even in our own language, when mm-hmm. one word can have multiple meanings. But in you know, another language, we want everything, yeah. But that, it's not like that. Yeah. I mean, you have to have the aspiration to, for enlightenment and the aspiration for, uh, for liberation, and those certainly aren't attachment. Yeah. Uh-huh. A few questions from online. Okay. Um, someone asks, some people say women have more negative karma, so then bhikshunis have more precepts than bhikshus. I think this is a common misunderstanding. The reason for more precepts is to protect a bhikshu to protect the bhikshunis. Yeah, and they, they, don't, they don't say that the bhikshunis have more negative karma. They say women have more afflictions, which is, you know, everybody, but then it's 84, everybody has 84,000. So then it's like, okay, well then the women have stronger afflictions. But Venerable Sangit Kajo has been giving a series of talks about that <laughs> and refuting that very well. Okay, so, uh, you know, the reason the bhikshunis have more precepts is because the bhikshu sangha was established first. So they started accumulating their precepts because every time somebody was naughty, the Buddha set up 
a precept for the monks. The Bhikshuni Sangha didn't come on come around until at least 12 years after the Bhikshu Sangha. So the Bhikshunis got the Bhikshu's precepts plus the ones that the naughty Bhikshunis did. But the Bhikshus didn't have to take the precepts that were made by the naughty Bhikshunis. That's why. Uh, someone else asks, um, if I've done the four opponent powers, and yet still I repeat an action that I've regretted, is the karma from doing that action that I've previously regretted heavier? I wouldn't think so, you know, because you did regret it. And so hopefully when you do it the next time, you'll regret it also. Yeah, but it depends. If you regretted it in the past and then this time you do it again, and then you say, oh, just forget it, you know, I'm just going to keep doing this, then it's going to be heavier. So I think it it's going to depend on your attitude after you do it the second time. Someone else asks, do all actions motivated by afflictions that are not specifically one of the ten non-virtues still have the potential to bring all of the karmic results? Yes. For, so like driving a car with pride. Driving a car? Driving in a new car with pride. That's the example that this person said. Okay. So that, that's considered, that's not deliberately one of the, ten specifically one of the ten non-virtues. Okay. It's definitely, a, well, it's a mental non-virtue. Um, yeah, it doesn't fit in neatly to any of the three. But what do you think? You think it's okay to drive your new car? I'm driving a Beamer, look at me. I'm gonna cut everybody off because I have a brand new shiny red sports car. Is that gonna be, uh, you know, that's not gonna be virtuous, is it? I mean, just cutting somebody off in traffic uh, with yeah, with arrogance, that doesn't fit into any of the ten non-virtues, but it's certainly not going to be karma-free. Now, whether that uh, the strength of that motivation is strong enough to throw a rebirth, I think that's going to depend on the, the specific situation and what's going on in somebody's mind. This person asks, when I started with Buddhism, I had a lot of motivation to practice and listen to the teachings. Now it is getting harder to focus on the teachings and it is difficult to be motivated to practice. Do you have any advice on how to renew the motivation? Well, what changed it? Why did it change? Because sometimes people are motivated when they're happy and then they have a bad situation and they stop practicing. Some people practice when they're unhappy, when they get happy again, then they stop practicing. So was there something that happened in your life? Or was it just that practicing Dharma was like really exciting at the beginning? And maybe there was some really good looking person in the class. Uh, and then that person stopped coming to the class and Dharma wasn't so interesting. Or, yeah, or did you start noticing your attachment? and your anger and your ignorance, and it became very uncomfortable. 
Yeah, or did was it because your dharma practice just became boring? I'm saying all these prayers. I'd hey, Raph, you know, God, I've said that so many times. You know, and I, I want you want something new and exciting. Um, you know what? What is it? <laughs> she clarified that it's like I have heard many things already before. So. Maybe there's, that's a little bit of pride. I've heard this teaching so far, far, so many times before. I've mastered it. I don't need to hear it again. It's for all these babies. But then you look in your life and ask yourself if you're really practicing it, and it's a different story. Is that applicable? I f- and I find other things to do, it feels more like I have to practice because I don't have the same enthusiasm as I had before. Yeah, well, it, yeah, I mean, oh, I didn't understand that so well. It's basically lacking enthusiasm because you're familiar with it. Yeah. So what, what did the Buddha teach? What, re- what meditation do you do when you become apathetic about the Dharma? Death and impermanence. So you may have heard that teaching many times, but you certainly haven't mastered it. (laughs) Because you're not, you know, you need to know what to think about when your mind gets bored and arrogant or whatever. So do some meditation on death and impermanence. What comes to my mind is that when a person hears teachings, but they don't practice them, they don't meditate on them, they don't reflect on them, they become callous to the Dharma. Yeah. And yeah. then they feel bored and uninterested. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, the Tibetans have this thing about, it's like a person with a, a leather bag, uh, the leather bag that they have butter in, Okay. So the leather bag that they put butter in apparently is very tough and inflexible, but the butter is very soft and mushy. So it's like you're so close to the Dharma, but you're, you know, you're hard and tough instead of soft and flexible. Yeah. So it's, it's that kind of thing of, uh, you know, the, the Dharma, yeah, you're not practicing, basically, you know, and applying it to your mind. Because when we really meditate, we, we begin to understand the Dharma, and it goes in our mind deeper, uh, then that doesn't happen so much. If you get uh, angry with uh, the self-centeredness and the self-grasping ignorance, is that afflictive? Oh, when you're angry at your self-centeredness and ignorance. If you get mad at yourself, like, oh, I'm such a bad person because I'm selfish, that's afflictive. But one of the thought training techniques is when you get anger, angry to turn your anger to the self-centeredness and say, self-centeredness, you've been running this show. You've made me suffer now, you know. All my anger, I'm not going to put it towards sentient beings. I'm going to put it towards you, self-centeredness. So that's good. That helps us. Okay.
Yeah. This thing about being, you know, kind of bored and complacent in your practice, I think everybody goes through it at some time or another. The thing is uh, learning how to pull yourself out of it. And that's where living in a community can be very helpful because you've got to get to your cushion and you've got to do these virtuous actions and you've got to go to teachings. And when you really engage with that, that helps quite a bit to, to pull us out of the complacency. Okay. Okay, so now the section where people are really going to have a lot of opinions. Yeah, so karma and current ethical issues. So these, we're taking many current ethical issues. We can't, on some of them, we cannot make definitive things because the science under, you know, underlying it changes all the time or it's not clear. Yeah, so uh, we're just kind of doing the best we can. Okay. Many ethical issues pertinent in our modern world have surfaced during my discussions with Dharma students and scientists, and people are interested in the Buddha's perspective on these. While some of these issues did not exist at the time of the Buddha due to lack of scientific knowledge, others did. Okay, like nobody discussed cloning at the Buddha's time. Okay or uh, in vitro fertilization, or, you know, that wasn't discussed. Of those uh, that did, others did. Okay, so others that, that existed at the time of the Buddha, uh, some were of concern to ancient Indian society, others were not, okay? Because Buddha and the great Indian sages did not tackle some of the ethical issues directly, I will share my perspectives on them based on Buddhist principles. So these are just perspectives. They aren't final God-spoken commandments. Yeah. Although several of these issues have been politicized, here I am regarding them solely as ethical issues. This is important, you know, because it's, when something gets politicized, it's like, yeah, is, somebody says, is wearing a mask virtuous or non-virtuous? Well, it depends if you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you were wear a mask when you're a Republican, that's non-virtuous. If you wear a mask when you're a Democrat, that's virtuous, but you're kind of stupid. Um, you know, it's like as soon as these things get politicized, it's really, it's really sad. Yeah, because then we can't see the ethical dimension in it. And that's what people, you know, talking about masks are trying to emphasize now. It's not a matter of politics. It has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with, you know, taking care of each other. Yeah. And even, uh, what does the Bible say? Take care of, treat, cut. You want your mother said you would have them 
yeah, do unto others as you would have them do unto you and love thy neighbor, yeah, as yourself. And so wearing a mask would fit in with those and it would fit. But now everything's so politicized that people can't even see the link between wearing a mask and, and, and ethical conduct. But there's definitely a link. Okay, so although several of these issues have become politicized, here I am regarding them solely as ethical issues. My intention is not to cause controversy, but to encourage compassion for everybody involved in difficult situations. Only by listening and working together, not by hostile rhetoric or aggressive actions, can sensitive issues and difficulties be resolved. Because we talk about abortion and other such things later on. Okay, as a human community, we must think carefully and choose wisely what scientific and technological research to engage in for the better, betterment of sentient beings. We must reflect on the possible long-term consequences of medical and chemical research, knowing that the threats of biological and chemical warfare are real. What follows are some thoughts about specific issues. Okay. So scientific research. Yeah. It's funny, you know, because having scientists there, I mean, I wonder when at the Mind Life Conference, initially I don't think many of the scientists come in thinking about is our work ethical or not, you know, because science is is increasing human knowledge and anything that increases human knowledge is seen as good, as virtuous, as wonderful. And that's not exactly the right criteria uh, for it. So distinguishing the ethical status of an action simply by looking at the action itself is difficult because the actor's motivation is a key factor. A seemingly beneficial action done with a harmful intention produces suffering in the long run for the one who did it and usually harms others in the present. On the other hand, a forceful action may appear harmful, but if carried out with an altruistic motivation, it will become constructive. In the case of scientific research, not only the action, but also the motivation must be taken into consideration. And along those lines, I remember having a big discussion with Geshe Sonam Renshin, Ruth, uh, his translator, and I, asking Geshe La about the A-bomb and the, uh, the scientists that developed it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he started asking, well, did they, you know, why were they working on that, uh, doing that? You know, well, the government asked them. Did they understand why the government asked them? Did they understand why the government wanted this? We don't know. And even if they understood, you know, why the government wanted it, was their interest in scientific discovery so great that they put aside uh, 
possible misuse of their research. Yes. I've read a book that addresses that specific thing, and it was the first report of declassified information written even before the Trinity test. So written before they knew it was even going to be used. So at the very beginning of the project, the scientists said, we have to have the bomb before the Nazis. And at a certain point, they knew that was no longer on the table. And in this report, it kind of had a sentence or two addressing that, like, oh, but we're still working on this. Wait a minute. What do you mean that it wasn't on the table if they knew the government? Mm, sorry, that, that at a certain point, they knew the Nazis weren't going to have the bomb. So initially, their motivation oh. maybe was virtuous. But at a certain point, even in this very early report, there's an acknowledgement that our original motivation no longer matters, but the work continues. I see. Okay. But there were spies giving secrets to the, to the Nazis, so they... I wonder how they knew that... Did they know about the spies at that time when they said the Nazis wouldn't get it? The, the book didn't acknowledge that, but I think it was just far enough along in the war effort that, that they knew that Nazi Germany was going to be defeated before they, okay. they got it. But it, it's a very interesting historical document because it was written before the test and some of the statements made in it. Like, we've, we created no symmetry. We probably will never use this. Um, so it's it's very it's really very they they knew they created the bomb, but they thought we'll never. Well, dosimetry is more just the the safety aspect, but for uh -huh. the bomb itself, it there are it's a very dry technical document, except a few places that really uh -huh. try to say people, you know, men and women of our country were doing this, you know, out of wanting to protect people not, you know, not wanting to use it. It's... I mean, that, that's true, too. It's, again, this, this one document tries to frame it in a very specific way, and there's a few passages that were then added after the, even the Trinity test. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, yeah, the question of motivation, I, I read from this document that there was a shift and it was no longer about defense and no longer about protecting the country. It was just the curiosity and to let's see if we can actually do this. That's, that's my reading of it. Uh -huh. Yeah, because I think, it, it, you know, if people have been, this is some, this, some totally new branch of science. Nobody had done anything like this before. So if we could come up with some really far out, I mean, amazing thing, wow. And so, you know, just because of their love of science, maybe, and then ignoring the, the possible uses of it. Mm. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know how, which scientists even thought about that. And which didn't. Franz said exactly. He turned around and he said, um, we have to uh, talk to each other. We have to listen to each other. Mm. Was he initially doing nuclear research? He was involved, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. And then he stopped. And then he recognized what power the bomb has. And he stopped. I was just wondering, 
was looking to see when Oppenheimer began to speak against it. You know, he was he he was so famously involved in the creation of it, but then also so involved in the regret and not wanting it to go further. And of course, like Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs had already been created and it was gone. But I can't find. I, I mean, in the quick look, I can't see at what point. But it it is even. It's he's quoted here as saying it, even in July of 1945. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. So he recognized something even that was happening before it was used in Japan. Wow. Yeah. I was reading also um, that because they had several planes going over to drop the bomb, and the guy in the first plane, the pilot, who was checking out whether the skies were clear and they could drop the bomb where they wanted to and figuring out where it was going to be dropped and so on. You know, he did it, you know, he was in the military and saved the country. And then uh, after he he did it, he had incredible regret that just taunted the, the rest of his life. Yeah. When he saw the effects of, of what it did. Scientists must consider long-term effects of their research on sentient beings and their environment. Pursuing scientific research simply out of curiosity to think how something, uh, to see how something operates or to invent interesting new devices is too simplistic a motivation. I do not know of scientists who researched atomic power sufficiently considered how governments could use the results of their work. Although scientists may expect good to come from their research, the actual outcome of their scientific investigation is not always clear. Scientists with a sincerely compassionate motivation and a sense of responsibility for the long-term implications of their research will make careful decisions about what to research. Yeah. Almost everything has advantages and disadvantages. Our concern should always be with what will bring the greatest good to the greatest number of living beings. We should take the time to assess a situation as best as we can, given our present knowledge, and follow what is most beneficial even if in the short term there are a few difficulties. People often assume what is best for the economy earns more income for their company, secures more political power, results in fame, or increases military might is most beneficial. These are not valid criteria for determining benefit. They are short-sighted and biased, and adhering to them could easily bring us as individuals and as members of the human species more suffering. We must consider that each and every sentient being wants happiness and freedom from suffering. I have been wondering, because we dedicate for removing obstacles for a vaccine for the COVID-19, but mm -hmm. the process of developing vaccine, many creatures are harmed. So yeah. do we then ha have that karma of harming these creatures? Because 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's a hard one because we all want a vaccine, but we don't want other living beings to be harmed in the process of developing it. So it's a difficult one, you know, and I think it probably, our karma would depend a lot on, on our attitude about this. If we say, well, we want a vaccine and living beings need to, be killed, but they're only animals, so it doesn't really matter. That's a very different thing than, you know, beings will be killed, and we really don't want any experimentation done on animals because it causes them suffering. So, you know, these are very sticky things, and I think it's going to depend a lot on the individual. And I am in no position to make firm uh, statements about this. These are the realm of the Buddha, not my realm. So should, um, should we have that thinking that it's um, to benefit, because there's so much suffering with the human beings now, and then this vaccine will help, uh, and then, but then wishing for that to happen Given the technology now, knowing that beings will be harmed, mm -hmm. to then have that courage that, you know, if, if these beings are harmed and there's negative karma, then may I take that? And so that yeah. I, you know, I, in some ways to help it. Cause to yeah. They say that, you know, if you're in a situation where you're going to commit some kind of negativity, at least do it with regret. You know, so I feel really horrible that the that animals are going to suffer. I wish we could do it without them suffering. And then, like you said, you do the taking and giving, and you take on the suffering of the animals and give them happiness. You know, we try and, you know, do something with our mind that acknowledges that other beings are suffering uh, so that we can be well. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing if people eat meat. Yeah, definitely sentient beings are suffering with that. And so uh, at least to wish them to have a good rebirth or whatever. Okay, so we'll stop here tonight. And next week we can talk some more about these very sticky contemporary ethical issues. Yeah.